This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 16, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. And we are back to our regular storyline. Been doing a couple of uh, bonus episodes to fill up this gap while I prepared. But we are back earlier than I expected. So inshallah, we will be continuing the discussion of the Caliphate of Uthman ibn Affan. We'll be going over the events leading up to his assassination and some of the important characters within this story. So, inshallah, sit back and listen. Show notes will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman4. That's U-T-H-M-A-N and then the number four. So, with that, let's go ahead and get into the Islamic History Podcast Season 2, Episode 16 In the last chapter of our story, we concluded the first six years of Uthman's administration. We discussed the pent-up frustration and feelings of angst among the inhabitants of the empire. These feelings were due to the political and economic malaise of the times, as well as some of Uthman's decisions. Some things were out of Uthman's control. His administration was saddled with the expensive stipend policy that his predecessor Omar had initiated. On top of that, he also had to deal with the complications of managing a vast empire. Also, some of Uthman's decisions were very unpopular. On top of the list was the perception that he often gave members of his family high positions within the government. And while it would prove immensely beneficial to the Muslim world, his decision to burn all non-standard Qur'ans had angered many people. Still, the first six years of Uthman's reign were marked by peace, stability, and overall prosperity. But all of that changed the day he lost the Prophet's ring. During his lifetime, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, had a ring engraved with the words Muhammad Rasulullah, Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah. When sending official correspondence, the Prophet would dip this ring in wax and affix his seal to the document. When he died, the ring passed on to Abu Bakr and from him to Omar. After he was stabbed, Omar gave the ring to his daughter Hafsa with orders to give it to the next caliph. And when Uthman was elected, he inherited the ring. However, the ring slipped off his finger while he was drawing water from a well one day. Despite all of his efforts, the ring could not be found. Instead, he had another ring made with the exact same inscription and would use that as his official seal. No one could have predicted the problems this would cause in the future. But for now, 
Uthman had his hands full managing the largest empire in the world, and as the caliph or successor of the Prophet, he was both the political and religious leader of the Muslims. On the religious side, Uthman made a slight alteration to the Friday prayer service. Friday is a day of worship for Muslims. Every Friday, all over the world, Muslims gather at local mosques to listen to a short sermon and perform a group prayer. In fact, the word for Friday in Arabic is Yawmul Jumu'ah, meaning the day of gathering. During the Prophet's lifetime, the Mu'adhin Bilal ibn Rabah would climb on top of the mosque and make the adhan, or the call to prayer. This would signal to everyone in Medina that services were about to begin. By the time Uthman became caliph, Medina was no longer a small village. It was the bustling capital of the Islamic empire and one of the largest cities in Arabia. To make things easier on the inhabitants of Medina, Uthman instructed his muadhin to begin making two adhans. One to let people know services will begin soon, then another just before Uthman began his khutbah or sermon. There are two benefits to adding a second adhan. Number one, the population was growing and people were living further away from the mosque. Having a second adhan allowed them to reach in time for services. Number two, the congregation on Fridays had grown very large. One adhan was called from a raised platform to make it easier for the crowd to hear. This practice of two adhans for Friday services continues to this day. The years 650 to 655 were very important for the Muslim empire. In 650, Abdullah ibn Amir, governor of Basra and Uthman's cousin, led a campaign to put down rebellions in eastern Persia. After quelling the rebellions, Abdullah ibn Amir pushed into Afghanistan, forcing the city of Herat to surrender in 651. Also in 651, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas led a diplomatic mission to China. He was warmly greeted by Emperor Gaozong of the Tang Dynasty, who commissioned the building of the first Chinese mosque. Three years later, in 654, the Muslim armies began to make their first inroads into what is now Uzbekistan. By 655, most of Central Asia had been conquered by the Muslims. Perhaps the most outstanding diplomatic achievement was the Bak Treaty between Muslim Egypt and Christian Nubia. Since the 640s, the Egyptian governor, Ibn Abi Sahar, had been attempting to extend his authority into southern Egypt and Nubia. The Muslim armies got as far as Dongola in northern Sudan. They laid siege to the city, but their losses were high and they were unable to break through the Nubian defenses. Many Muslims lost their eyes to the keen marksmanship of the Nubian archers. Finally, the Muslims decided to cut their losses and call for a treaty. The two sides drew up an agreement that would last for the next 600.
hundred years. This treaty was known as Bakht, perhaps derived from the Greek word for pact, and would develop into a mutual understanding between the Muslims and Christians of the area. While certain particulars would shift over the years, the core fundamentals of the treaty remained the same. These included free passage for citizens of both nations. Nubia agreed to maintain a mosque for Muslim travelers. This was not necessary for the Muslims, as there were already many churches in Egypt. And finally. Neither side would allow settlers in the other's territory. Though the Bakht Treaty was a success, there were other problems simmering under the surface in Egypt. Most of them had to do with the governor Ibn Abi Sahar. Many Egyptian residents felt he was inferior to the man he replaced, Amr Ibn Al As. Amr ibn al-As was a respected companion and had proven himself to be an outstanding figure both on and off the battlefield. He led the first Muslim armies into Egypt and conquered most of the territory, including the capital Alexandria. Ibn Abi Sahar, on the other hand, had accepted Islam, then left Islam to become a pagan again. All while betraying the Muslims and aiding their enemies, the Quraysh, he would eventually repent for his sins and was pardoned by the Prophet. But his wicked deeds were never forgotten. As a military leader, Ibn Abi Sahar did fairly well. He conquered Libya, defeated the Romans at sea, and authorized the Bakht Treaty. But as governor, he often left much to be desired. He knew that most people felt he only got the job because his cousin was the caliph. Furthermore, he could never escape the shadow of Amr ibn al-As, nor the stigma of betraying Prophet Muhammad. This made Ibn Abi Sahar paranoid and cruel to those who opposed him. And after nearly ten years as governor of Egypt, many people were beginning to oppose him. In addition to his checkered past, he was haunted by his inept handling of Egypt's finances. The spoils from the conquest of Libya brought a massive influx of wealth into Egypt. From this wealth, Othman granted a large portion to Ibn Abi Sahar. Ibn Abi Sahar would subsequently squander this wealth on foolish endeavors. His financial incompetence was further heightened by the paltry stipends some Egyptians received. The government stipends were based on seniority and closeness to Prophet Muhammad, as well as service in the military. Most of the Muslims in Egypt were newly converted Muslims and had never served in the military. Therefore, their stipends were relatively small. Of course, they blamed this on Ibn Abi Sahar and began calling for his removal. Though not proven, 
Some historians speculate that these protests were instigated by Amr ibn al-As. Ibn Abi Sahar responded viciously. He had some of these protesters arrested and imprisoned, others he had exiled, and one he had beaten to death. The Egyptians sent letters to Medina asking Uthman to dismiss Ibn Abi Sahar, but he either never received them or did not feel they were warranted. The anger in Egypt began to shift away from Ibn Abi Sahar and towards Uthman ibn Affan. At the center of the storm was a young man who was the youngest son of the second greatest Muslim. Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr was the last son of Abu Bakr, Prophet Muhammad's closest friend and the first caliph of the Muslims. Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr was related by marriage and genetics to several prominent Muslims. His sister was Aisha, the widow of Prophet Muhammad. His mother Asma was once married to Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, the cousin of Prophet Muhammad and the brother of Ali ibn Abi Talib. When Ja'far died, Asma married Abu Bakr. Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr was born just a few months before the death of Prophet Muhammad. As caliph, his father was kept busy putting down the massive rebellion known as the Wars of Apostasy. Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr was only about two years old when his father died. After Abu Bakr's death, his mother married her former brother-in-law, Ali ibn Abi Talib. Therefore, Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr was essentially raised by and in the household of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Given this relationship, we can see why Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr supported Ali over Uthman. Egypt was not the only place that was beginning to boil over with anger towards Uthman. Iraq, which had always been difficult to govern, was starting to heat up with complaints and frustration. In Kufa and Basra, two of the major Iraqi cities, people were upset about Uthman's land use policy. Several residents had been prevented from grazing their animals on public lands. At the same time, they could see hundreds of camels grazing in these areas and mistakenly thought they belonged to Uthman. However, these were government-owned camels meant to be used for warfare and charity. As time went on and the number of government camels increased, the amount of land needed for their grazing also increased. More and more Iraqis were squeezed out of public lands and this just raised their animosity towards Uthman. Unfortunately, Uthman was oblivious to these feelings. He was nearly 80 years old and preferred spending his time in worship and reading Quran with his wife, Naila. 
he had delegated much of the government's administration to his controversial uncle and secretary, Marwan ibn al-Hakam. Marwan ibn al-Hakam was involved in at least two controversies during Uthman's reign. One was during the early part of Uthman's administration when Marwan served as treasurer of Egypt. It was under his watch that Ibn Abi Sahar squandered the spoils from the conquest of Libya. The second point of controversy involving Marwan was his father, Al-Hakam. Al-Hakam was once an enemy of the Prophet and had been exiled upon the Muslim conquest of Mecca. When Uthman became caliph, he lifted the ban on Marwan's father, allowing him to return to Medina. It is not clear how much influence Marwan had on this decision. But it is clear that this did not sit well with many of Uthman's detractors. Another troubling incident involved the companion Ammar ibn Yasir. Like Uthman, Ammar ibn Yasir was one of the earliest followers of Prophet Muhammad. However, while Uthman was a wealthy merchant and belonged to the powerful Umayyah clan, Ammar was the son of slaves. His father was from Yemen and his mother was African, possibly from Ethiopia or Nubia. As slaves and outsiders in pre-Islamic Mecca, they were at the absolute bottom of the social order. Ahmad accepted Islam when he was 45 years old. Soon after, his elderly parents did the same. Unfortunately, they did this at a time when Muslims were being severely persecuted by the Quraysh. Ahmad and his parents endured unspeakable torture. They were burned, beaten, and left exposed in the 100-degree heat of the Arabian desert. The Quraysh would hold Ammar's head in water almost to the point of drowning. Then they would pull him up and command him to renounce Islam. To add to his suffering, they would force Ammar to watch as his parents were whipped and mutilated. Despite this torment, none of them said anything against Prophet Muhammad, nor did they give up their faith. Finally, After several days of this agony, the Quraysh had grown frustrated. They killed Ammar's father Yasir and his mother Sumeya right in front of him. They then turned towards Ammar and threatened to do the same thing to him if he did not give up Islam. Seeing his parents tortured and killed must have broken him. Ammar ibn Yasir finally said the words they wanted to hear. The Quraysh released Ammar ibn Yasir, who hurried back to Prophet Muhammad to relate what happened. The Prophet knew Ammar only said what he had to say in order to save his life. It by no means reflected what was in his heart. Prophet Muhammad advised Ammar that if this happened in the future, he should do the same thing. But far from weakening him, this torture only seemed to strengthen Ammar's faith. 
He would go on to become one of Prophet Muhammad's most devoted and ardent followers. Ahmad ibn Yasir participated in all of the major battles, Badr, Uhud, Khandak, Mecca. Even after the Prophet's death, he continued to serve for the cause of Islam. He was well into his 60s when he fought against the rebels during the wars of apostasy. He was there in the front ranks in the battle of Yamama against the false prophet Musaylam al-Kadhab. And after the conquest of Persia, Omar ibn al-Khattab appointed him governor of Kufa. Now, like many others in the empire, Ahmad ibn Yasir disagreed with some of Uthman's policies. However, he remained in Medina and continued to support the caliph. Until one fateful day drove a permanent wedge between Ahmad ibn Yasir and Uthman ibn Affan. One day, Ahmad went to Uthman's house to discuss the unrest and unhappiness in the empire. And normally, Uthman would have no problem giving him an audience. Despite ruling over a large empire, Uthman led a simple life and was very accessible. It was not uncommon for regular citizens to come to his home and request a meeting. However, on this occasion, Uthman was unavailable and instructed his servant to tell Ahmad to return at a later time. Ahmad ibn Yasir was not a regular citizen. He was an old man who had suffered and sacrificed his entire adult life for the cause of Islam. He had been one of the closest companions of Prophet Muhammad and were not for the fact he wasn't a Qurayshi would have been a candidate for the caliphate himself. He did not take kindly to being brushed aside by anyone, not even the caliph. Ahmad and the servant got into an argument that escalated into a fight. It only ended when the servant picked up a stick and began to beat the elderly companion. While Uthman was unaware of this incident, it ruined the relationship between him and Ahmad. But it seems Uthman did not fully grasp the damage that had been done. Because when he decided to investigate the cause of the unrest in Egypt, he appointed none other than Ahmad ibn Yasir. Ahmad ibn Yasir obediently traveled to Egypt and met with the dissident ringleader Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. After a few days of discussion, Ahmad ibn Yasir was convinced of their cause and decided to join them. He chose to remain in Egypt and never return to Uthman in Medina. The defection of Ahmad ibn Yasir was a serious blow to Uthman. He could no longer treat the unrest lightly. While he did not understand the cause of the unhappiness, he knew there was something serious underfoot. In the year 655, he requested all of his governors to meet in Medina after the Hajj pilgrimage. He wanted an account of the situation in their provinces and their opinion on how to deal with the unrest. When the governors met with Uthman, they all had different ideas on how to deal with the protesters and dissidents. One suggested the protesters had too much time on their hands. 
sending them to the front lines would keep them occupied. Another said they only wanted money and paying them off would calm them down. Other suggestions were much more severe. Ideas flied about like, exile them from the provinces, set an example by whipping and imprisoning the ringleaders, and finally, just kill them all. Othman was unwilling to take such harsh actions. He also wanted to know the reason for their discontent. When he asked the governors why so many people were upset, none of them had an answer. There were lots of rumors and ideas, but there was nothing concrete that Othman could fix. Ultimately, the meeting adjourned with no real progress having been made. In fact, the only decision to come from this meeting was to have another meeting the following year. Othman instructed his governors to return to their provinces and continue monitoring events in their areas. He invited them and anyone with complaints to an assembly after the next Hajj. He promised everyone would have a chance to speak and that justice would be done on their behalf. At this point, Othman did not yet comprehend how deep the resentment was among the dissidents. He still felt that if he just knew what they were upset about, he could find a way to fix it. He did not know that the main problem they had with Uthman's government was Uthman himself. Right, well, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that beneficial. This was actually a pretty fun episode for me. Not fun in the fact I enjoy what's happening to Uthman as the clouds of descent are coming down on his head, but it was overall a very exciting podcast. I, I can see the the uh, strings of history starting to tighten, and uh, I'm learning a lot more even as I put this all together. I don't want you to think that I know all this stuff off the top of my head. Trust me, I don't. Inshallah, we will be concluding this chapter of the Islamic history. That means the, um, the Caliphate of Uthman ibn Affan, most likely, we will be concluding that in the next episode, which of course will include Othman's assassination, and I hope that wasn't a spoiler. So, I kind of think most Muslims know that Othman was eventually assassinated, but anyway, we'll get to that some other time. So, this will bring us closer to one of the most difficult chapters in Islamic history. We're going to get into the Civil War very soon. Not the next episode, but 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 it's coming. It's coming up. The Civil War between Ali and Muawiyah. We've already mentioned both of these two companions so far. We've mentioned Ali a couple of times. We mentioned Muawiyah. He's currently Uthman's governor of Syria. He's the one who, who uh, established the navy. We spoke about them already, but we're going to get into them, inshallah, probably another two or three episodes coming up soon. Anyway, there's um something you may have noticed I omitted from the storyline for those of you who are very familiar with Uthman ibn Affan's life. That was uh the role and the person known as Abdullah ibn Sabah. I kind of left that out. If you don't know who Abdullah ibn Sabah is, I believe it is a most likely, 
I'm I'm not convinced, but I, I kind of think he was most likely a fictional character invented by Muslims to explain how so many people disliked Othman and eventually wanted to kill him. And it's I, I can't discuss everything about Abdullah ibn Sabah without giving it all away and doing another episode. And I'm not doing that right now. But essentially, just quickly, 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 in many Islamic history books, Abdullah ibn Sabah is mentioned as the mastermind and the ringleader behind the fall of Uthman. And he is unfortunately the typical villain. He is a a dark-skinned Yemeni Jew who converts to Islam for the sole purpose of bringing Islam down and causing confusion. To me, that sounds a little bit too archetypal to me. So, And I'm not alone in this, by the way. There are many other historians, both Muslim and non-Muslim, who believe that Abdullah ibn Sabah was not real. And there are some who say he was real, but had no part to play in Uthman's fall, really Uthman's assassination. And granted, there are many who do believe he was real. I'm going to omit him from the storyline because I do not believe he was real. However, in fairness to the history books, because he does play a fairly prominent role in many history books, I will discuss him in the exclusive podcast that I reserve for sponsors of the Islamic History Podcast. It's called Islamic History Exclusive, and anyone who is a sponsor of the Islamic History Podcast at the $4 level or and above, they will get the story of Abdullah ibn Sabah as I've found it in uh, several um, Islamic History books. Inshallah, that will be available hopefully in a few days if it's not available by the time this comes out. So if you are not yet a sponsor and you would like to hear the story of Abdullah ibn Sabah, which I'm not convinced is actually a true story. If you would like to hear it, nonetheless, you're going to have to become a sponsor. And you can do that, inshallah, by visiting either the show notes for this episode, which will be at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman4, or by going straight to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash islamichistory. Now, speaking of sources, I wanted to share some of my sources with you and where I'm getting a lot of this information. One of my favorite sources, especially for details about the lives, about the lives of the different companions of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is a book called Men and Women Around the Messenger. Now, generally speaking, I prefer to use Muslim sources for uh, the background or for the studies and my research in this podcast. I prefer Muslim sources, but I will use non-Muslim sources if Muslim sources are not available. In this case, however, Men and Women Around the Messenger is written by a Muslim, a brother named Sa'ad Yusuf Abu Aziz, and it is excellent. It covers many of the Prophet's companions, both men and women, and I have found it very, very useful in, in uh, developing the story for this podcast. Inshallah, a link 
to purchase it if you're interested in on uh, or yourself. A link to purchase it will be available on the show notes, which will once again be islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman4. And when you purchase it, it's going to be an Amazon link. When you purchase it, I'm going to be forthright. It is an affiliate link, but I have used it and I can definitely say that it's a great source. It is an affiliate link. It will not increase how much you pay for the book. But if you buy it through this affiliate link, inshallah, I will get a, a few coins and kickback. So I don't know how much I'm going to get, but Amazon will give me a little bit for suggesting it. And trust me, this is not a light suggestion. This is really a good book. Inshallah, if you would like to know more about many other companions that I have not mentioned in this podcast, considering get, consider getting this book, inshallah. So other things you can do at the, at the uh at the show notes page, you can read uh, my notes for this episode or really a transcript for this episode. You can follow me on various forms of social media. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Links will all be in the show notes for that. Just go to IslamicLearningMaterials.com slash Oathman4. And of course, at that same link, you can support and help out the show if you choose to do so. So we are going to wrap this up and we're going to bounce out of here to the Nasheed Happy by Almar Issa. It's uh, kind of like a halal version of Pharrell Williams' song Happy from 2013. So I hope you enjoy it, inshallah. It's no music, all a cappella. So with that, we're going to go. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Hey mate, ain't that the Quran? Yes, the Quran. You're one of the Muslims, isn't it? Okay, I'm one of those Muslims. Man, you guys are so angry. What's your name, bro? David. David, my friend. We're not angry, trust me. In fact, we're really happy. I'm going to show you why. Assalamu alaikum. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let me tell you about my happiness. I get my happiness from Islam It makes me kind and a better human Oh please come with me and I'll show you why I smile because I'm happy I'm a Muslim, that's what makes me happy And that's the truth because I'm happy Because I have the noble Quran and that's where I get
I smile because I'm happy. I'm a Muslim, that's what makes me happy, and that's the truth. Because I'm happy, because I have the noble Quran, and that's where I get my roots. Because I'm happy, because my Lord is merciful, and He is the forgiving one. Because I'm happy, and I have the Sunnah, which dictates what my life should do. I just wanna tell the world that we're happy. Just because we're Muslim doesn't mean we're angry. But when we see our fellow Muslims that are suffering, we just wanna help 'cause we're one big family. I'm happy. I'm a Muslim. That's what makes me happy, and that's the truth. Because I'm happy. 'Cause I have the noble Quran, and that's where I get my roots. Because I'm happy. Because my Lord is merciful, and He is the forgiving one. Because I'm happy and I have the Sunnah, which dictates what my life should do. Because I'm happy, I'm a Muslim. That's what makes me happy, and that's the truth. Because I'm happy, 'cause I have the noble Quran, and that's where I get my roots. Because I'm happy, 'cause my Lord is merciful and He is the forgiving one. Because I'm happy and I have the Sunnah, which dictates what my life should do. I'm so happy I'm a Muslim. Hey, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but could I have a copy of that? Yeah, of course, man. Cheers, mate. Thanks. No